Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Happy August. Pray with me, will you? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that is read, sung, preached, and studied. We thank you, Lord God, that many centuries ago you chose the Colossians to be your people and you enabled them to be faithful. And there was a Christian presence in that city for many years. And even today, Lord, we pray that if there are any Christians in the vicinity of ancient Colossus there in Turkey today, that you would strengthen them to walk by faith and not by sight. As we ask that you would do the same for us here in Hingham this morning. Cause your word to just settle deeply in our minds and hearts. Through your grace, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Back in chapter 2 of Colossians, uh, a few weeks ago, we heard Paul argue that the strict and the legalistic rules circulating among the Colossian church was of little value to their relationship with God. Because Paul said in verse 23 of chapter 2, if you remember, that although practicing these religious rules seemed wise, in reality, they were of no benefit. And there are many today that we know of that practice strict religious rules, and we know that those people think that they're benefiting from them in terms of getting closer to God. So this still happens today, and Paul says, this is of no benefit. This is of no benefit. But the question is, why? Why are they no benefit? Because as Pastor Steve preached last week in Colossians 3 verse 1, it says the Colossian Christians had been raised up with Christ himself. They'd been raised with him. They had died with him and they had been raised up with him. And so therefore they were as close to God as they could ever be. They couldn't get any closer to God because they had died and risen with Jesus, God the Son. And we also learned last week that since the Colossian Christians were raised with Christ, they were commanded to continually turn from their sin and put on, it said, the new self. So this morning in our text, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul tells the Colossians on how to put on the new self. Or another way of saying it is, how to live as a Christian. Let's read the passage together. In your pew Bibles, It's found on page 1044, or you may just want to read it 
on the wall behind me. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. And above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Before we we continue, I just feel that it's important to say something. I think that it's possible to become over-familiar with biblical vocabulary and themes, such as the biblical vocabulary and theme that's in our passage this morning. And if we're not careful, we can become numb to God's truth. What we hear in our passage this morning, the imperatives, for example, we've heard countless times, some of us, over the years as Christians following Christ. But nevertheless, we are called to listen and to always take very seriously God's word afresh, for it will outlast everything. God's word will outlast everything. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The word of God is our food, is our soul's food. And we never tire of eating. We need food every day. Back to our passage. I don't know if you notice this, but the verb to put has been used quite a bit over the last two weeks, or last Sunday and this Sunday in today's text. And I want us to just think about and notice the difference between how the verb to put is used this week compared to last week's text. For an example, in verse 5 of last week's preaching, chapter 3, Paul says, put to death. In verse 8, he says, put away. In verse 9, he says, since you have put off the old self, and then he does say in verse 10, put on the new self. 
And this morning in verse 12, as we just read, he says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he says, put on love in verse 14. And I want us to notice that last week's use of put generally implied that we take off our sin by putting it away, while this morning we're told to put on good works. Let's look at verse 12. It says that, again, we're to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And, and, the, and the word here, used for put on, implies clothe yourselves with these things. So Paul's saying, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Brothers and sisters, this is how we ought to dress ourselves every day. And compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are good works. But as we sung this morning, there's something else, aren't there? Galatians 5.22 says, for example, that kindness, gentleness, and patience are fruits of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit not only in Colossians and Galatians, but all over the Bible, even in the Old Testament. For example, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And in Psalm 18:1, David writes about joy. He says, Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. And of course, Jesus certainly taught about the fruits of the Spirit. But I think that sometimes we can become so used to hearing about the fruits of the Spirit that we don't fully consider what they mean. And if we don't understand what they mean, how will we properly clothe ourselves with them? So I thought it was a good idea to define them for a moment. Compassion. I like this definition. Deep feeling about someone's difficulty or misfortune. Kindness. Being friendly and considerate. Humility. Not thinking that you are better than others or more important than others. Humility is not what Frederick Howe, the professor, former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, calls a pious inferiority complex in which someone is making much of their humility to be seen and admired. That's a danger. That is a danger to make much of yourself by being the most humble person around where in reality it's not humility, it's a pious inferiority complex, and it's not genuine. Gentleness, polite, restrained behavior toward others, and patience, accepting delay or trouble without getting upset. And if you live in Massachusetts in 2023, you know what it is to be delayed on Route 3 and even 228. 
Church, these are fruits we are to put on. But how can we clothe ourselves with these fruits? By following the Lord Jesus. What does that look like? Turn, let's turn to Matthew 9, 35 and 30, uh, verse 36, which is also in our Pew Bibles on page 863. Matthew 9, 35 and 36, page 863. This is a familiar account. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, what did he feel? Compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus said this to his disciples because he had deep, a deep feeling, a compassion for the people because of their misfortune and of not having a good shepherd. It wasn't just this mental concern that Jesus had. Oh, these people seem like they lack a good shepherd. It was a deep feeling that he felt within. And we are called to have that same heartfelt concern for others within the body of Christ and outside of the body of Christ when our brothers and sisters or neighbors have a difficulty or misfortune. When we have this compassion, we are certainly clothed with it. Andrew Noble is a Christian who lives in Ontario, Canada, and he tells this little story about how his life was changed when someone in the church asked him, how are you? He explains how a new friend placed his hand on my shoulder. His eyes, he says, pierced into mine like a loving laser beam. And he said a second time, how are you, really? This act of compassion by an unnamed Christian may not be what we call significant. But believe it or not, Noble says that this was a major and is a major part of his testimony of coming to Christ. Brothers and sisters, are we clothing ourselves with compassion? Do we see the people around us as Jesus did, like lost sheep without a shepherd? And when I say lost, I mean lost. They don't know that Jesus is the only way to their loving creator. And when we say, how are you to someone, do we say it only as like the courteous thing to do? 
How are you? Only the courteous thing to do? Or are we prepared to listen to someone as they are not doing well and care for them in return? Let's think about the fruit of humility for a moment. Some think that humility is demonstrated when you don't boast and you don't brag. And that's true. But I think humility can be practiced in other ways that are not so obvious. Like when we listen to people say hard things to us and not interrupt them when they're saying those hard things to us and not get angry. That takes humility. For example, when your boss speaks rudely to you, it takes humility to listen to your boss speaking rudely to you and not retaliate. Or what about when your sister lectures you when the whole time she's lecturing you, you know that she's wrong about what she's saying, but you listen anyway. It takes humility to listen and not interrupt until she's finished. And I know that these situations may seem significant, but they're real ways to demonstrate humility. And our example is the Lord Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, He humbled himself. We know that. He became a servant. He washed his disciples' feet. We think of that as an outstanding example of humility. But think about how Jesus listened to people say things that were cruel and untrue to him. Think about it. He was falsely accused and mocked He knew that these accusations and mockeries were false and more than that, evil. Because he was God in the flesh. But he still listened and did not retaliate. And the Lord Jesus showed us the major way that we are called to practice humility, didn't he? Considering others as more important than ourselves. Looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others, as Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says. Jesus was so humble that he submitted to the Father's will to hang on the cross in agony until he breathed his last so that his enemies could be saved from his wrath. He was more concerned about lost souls than his own life. And Paul later on writes in Philippians 3.10 that his goal was to know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. There are people today in parts of the world, from what I understand, in the Philippines, and I've heard it takes place in Mexico, where people try to share in Jesus' sufferings by carrying a cross that's very heavy through the streets, 
And it's been known throughout the ages that people have inflicted wounds on themselves to identify with Jesus' suffering. But really, identifying yourself with Jesus and his suffering involves partially imitating his humility. When we humble ourselves, it can bring a degree of suffering. And in that, we fellowship with Christ in his suffering. And my question is, to myself and to you, in what situations can we fellowship with Jesus and his suffering by being humble this coming week and beyond? Let's take a little detour now to verse 14 where we are urged to, above all these, put on love. Paul says that love is the number one thing, the primary fruit. And he says that elsewhere in Galatians 5.22 where he lists love first. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 13.13 13, where he says, the greatest of these is love. The late theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul says that this love that Paul's describing here, that famous agape love, is not simply affection shared between people that really care for each other, but it involves a lack of self-interest. And its characteristics are the fruits of the Spirit in our passage this morning. So this teaches us that properly clothing ourselves with the fruits of compassion, humility, and kindness must come from a heart for God and for others, not from what we can get out of it. Isn't it kind of common to be kind and be the, have the temptation to, to, to show kindness and patience just so we can get that person to like us or we can get some kind of favor because we come across as such a nice person? That's not love. Love is doing these things to honor God and truly honor another. And Colossians 3.14 says this love is the perfect bond of unity for it binds the church together. And I really believe that we can think that a loving church simply means a Christian fellowship where we come in and we feel we are cared for and encouraged. And it, but it's more than that. It's more than feeling cared for and encouraged and this warm feeling and a hug and an embrace. Jonathan Lehman says, look, we love the idea of warm fellowship that will embrace us, but we despise the fellowship's requirement that we abandon the familiar blandishments of family and friend and submit to its oversight and discipline. In other words, we enjoy the acceptance we all receive, or a lot of us receive, but not the accountability the church holds us to. 
those things that family and friends may overlook. But the church will not because of the importance of sanctification. Sanctification. Wayne Grudem says that sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Think about that. Justification, our salvation, has nothing to do with us. It's all God. We could never be saved through our own efforts. But sanctification is different. It involves God and our surrender to what God is doing in our lives, the surgery he does on our hearts, which is painful. Because the race that Paul says we ought to run is a race of sanctification. Romans 8.28 says that the Father predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is God's will for our lives. People spend years saying, God, what is your will for my life? And they can overlook this key verse. God's will is to make us like Jesus. Again, we're not saved by sanctification, but saved people are sanctified. And when we as a church humbly hold one another accountable, that can be irritating, that can be painful. But when we hold one another accountable for sanctification, that's part of the love that unifies us. Now, to understand verse 13 of our text, let's just look back at the end of verse 12. Because at the end of verse 12, the last fruit is patience that's listed. Put on patience. And then right after that, in verse 13, it explains what patience can look like with the phrase, bearing and forgiving one another. Think about those words, to bear. It means to endure and to persist with someone when we find fault with them, not to write them off. We can become impatient with people that bother us pretty easily, like that person at work who is lazy, yet always talks us big game about their job performance. Or the friend at school, kids and teenagers, that's late, that, that does not listen to anything you have to say. Or what about that person from right here in church who is unkind to us? God says we're called to bear with these people. We're called to forgive them. Why? You know the answer. Because Christ forgave us. Remember in Matthew 18, 21, when Peter asked Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? And the Jews at that time really thought, we think, that three times was good enough. They said doing it once is certainly forgiving. Doing it a second time certainly is, is certainly being like God. 
And certainly doing it a third time is really being like God. And so Peter says, what about seven times? I'm going beyond that. That's really generous. And you know Jesus' reply, 77 times, saying basically, look, Peter, we're not to keep count of how many times we forgive. We're to always forgive, Peter. And this seems really harsh because some of us have been tremendously wounded and unspeakably hurt by people. But when we think about the enormity of our sin against God and how offensive our sin is to God and yet how he forgave us, I think it helps us understand why we are called to forgive continually. Belonging to Christ means we have lost our right to refuse forgiving someone. We don't have a right to that. We are obligated to forgive because we have been forgiven. And many of us are familiar with the story of Corey Tenboom and her book, the classic, The Hiding Place. Corey was a Dutch Christian who, along with her father and sister, hid Jews in their home when the Nazis occupied their town in the Netherlands during the Second World War. And eventually, Corey and her sister, Betsy, were captured and they were sent to a concentration camp while their dad was taken to a prison in the Hague. Eventually, only Corey survived. And later, after she got out of prison, she told how the Lord helped her forgive when it seemed impossible to do so. She writes in her book, The Hiding Place, it was a church service in Munich that I saw him, a man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. That's the concentration camp. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen that time, and suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Frau Lane. That's a German word for saying young madam. He said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often to the people in Blomendal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, 
I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ and let the word of Christ, Paul focuses on, dwell and reign in you. Verse 15. Let Christ's peace rule our hearts. The word for rule was used to express the role of an umpire in the ancient athletic games in the first century. What does an umpire do in a modern baseball game? He calls strikes and balls. But more importantly, the batter is to submit to his authority. So Paul is saying, submit or let the reign of Christ's peace rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ is not referring to a mere peace of mind here. Oh, I'm at peace today. I feel content. It's more than that. Don't miss this. The peace of Christ is the peace we have with God because we are no longer under his wrath. That's a kind of peace that makes you say to yourself, phew, I'm no longer an object of God's wrath. And we ought to submit to this peace, peace with God by allowing it to rule our lives. Think about it. Having peace with God means that although we will continue to experience great sadness and pain in this life, we do not have to fear eternal sadness and pain in hell. This gives us hope. And verse 16 says, let the word of Jesus dwell in us richly. Yes, I know, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you do that? What does this actually mean? Is it just a nice saying? No. It's more than that. It requires us to do something. The word of Christ here means the teaching about Jesus that we have in our Bibles, and it also means the teaching of Jesus himself, the very words of Jesus. And Paul's saying, hey, look, you Colossians ought to consume this information that I and before me, Epaphras, have taught you so that it would settle in you, let it dwell in you, let it settle in you richly or abundantly. And brothers and sisters, we ought to study what the scriptures teach about Christ and what Christ's and Christ's very own words so that they become part of us, part of our flesh. Some of us are more familiar 
with sports terminology. We're more familiar with financial terminology. We're more familiar with political terminology and arguments than we are God's word. Think about this. The Colossians did not have a New Testament canon in front of them. What does that mean? It means that they had to memorize what they were taught by Paul and Epaphras. Yes, they did eventually receive part of the canon, the letter of Colossians, but they had to take the little that they had and memorize it so that it could dwell on them. But today, you and I can read and listen to the word of Christ in the New Testament whenever we want. Let's then be good stewards of the gift of God's word by consuming it. And I know that many of us are, continue to. Even today, there are the believers that do not have access to God's word as easily as we do. In Massachusetts here. So we're without excuse if we don't study it. And the scripture says, once the word abides in us, we are to teach and exhort one another with it. What does that mean? That means speaking the word to each other, urging each other to keep on believing the gospel and doing good works. Why is this necessary? Can't we just read the word for ourselves in the morning over a cup of coffee? Yes, that's that's our obligation to read the word for ourselves. But by teaching and exhorting one another, we encourage each other to keep running that race that Hebrews 13.3 says, uh, talks about, but encourage each other daily while it is called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. And, and exhorting and teaching one another has another function as one commentator states. It contains warnings about the hazards of drifting from the gospel's truth. And you'll notice that these warnings of drifting from the gospel, they're all over the New Testament. And speaking them to each other helps the church stay on course. So what's one way to teach, exhort, and warn? Through singing. The passage says we have songs of praise from the Psalms, And then it says hymns, which are songs that the church writes. And even spontaneous songs to worship God and exhort one another with. But the key, Paul says, is to sing and worship with the gratitude in our hearts. Otherwise, it's just empty. Have you ever thought that the role of singing in church was not only to worship God, but so that others could hear you singing and be exhorted and encouraged by it? You may never thought of that. Because in some ways, we see the church uh, worship time as entertainment, and we see it only as worship, which is most important, but not think about the exhorting part. New Testament and early church professor Larry Hurtado said that what was so key for the New Testament Christians' worship was that 
it was centered around the scripture, not ceremonies and visuals that the pagans around them used their worship for. As a result, the hearts and minds of the Christians were shaped by God's word. So, therefore, the songs we sing are to be centered on the word because they shape us, you know. You're recalling biblical words and phrases during the week in a large part because of the words that we sing. This is word-centered singing is what makes our singing sacred and acceptable to God. Worship leader Paul S. Jones says that when the church sings, she is making a proclamation and interpretation of the Bible and the edification and encouragement of the saints with the ultimate goal of giving glory to God. Finally, Paul says that all we say and do should be done in the name of, for the reputation of, the Lord Jesus. John Calvin gives a helpful comment on what this means when he says that our lives must be regulated in such a manner that whatever we say or do may be wholly governed by the authority of Christ and may have an eye to his glory as the mark. Let's ask ourselves then, in various situations, will me doing this or saying this dishonor Jesus? Let's ask ourselves that. So then, what is our motive and fuel for obeying our passage this morning? What is the reason why we are to clothe ourselves with the fruit of the Holy Spirit and submit to the peace and word of Jesus as we exhort one another with gratitude, doing everything in Jesus' name? What's the motive and fuel for doing all this? The answer is found in the very beginning of our text. The reason is because God has chosen us. He is making us holy, and he loves us. Peter T. O'Brien, the vice principal at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia, notes that the words chosen, holy, and loved are found in the Old Testament to describe Israel as God's distinct people. And in the New Testament, they describe God's people who are in Christ, both Jewish and non-believers. However, he points out, holy, chosen, and loved are also used to speak of Jesus. Ever think about that? Luke 23, 35 says that Jesus is the chosen one. Mark 1, 24 says that Jesus is the holy one. And Matthew 3, 17 records that at Jesus' baptism, the Father said, this is my beloved Son. What should we conclude? how amazing it is that God uses the same words for us, his chosen, holy, and beloved children.
What a strong motivation, brothers and sisters. What a never-ending fuel, then, to obey Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Let's pray. We cannot do any of these things apart from you, Jesus. For you told us that we must abide in you. We cannot produce fruit. We cannot follow these commands with joy and happiness apart from you. And so remind us that obeying this passage this morning is because we are saved. And help us to yield to you intentionally every day to be sanctified by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to see that a successful life is not in how much money we make in a promotion or in what we accomplish, but a successful life is to what degree did we yield to your work of sanctification and obey you each day? Lord, go with us as we leave, to our left, to our right, and in front of us and behind us. In your name we pray, amen.